I'm Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Lorgia Garcia Pena. She's a first-generation Latinx study scholar and the Mellon Associate Professor of Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora Studies at Tufts University. She taught at Harvard University from 2013 to 2021 and was denied tenure in 2019. Her latest books are Community as Rebellion, a Syllabus for Surviving Academia as a Woman of Color, and Translating Blackness, Latinx Colonialities in Global Perspective. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Uh, I'm Mason Morfitt. I live in uh, the great state of Maine. I spent many years in uh, land conservation with an outfit called the Nature Conservancy. And then in the last 10 years or so, I've been more concerned with uh, climate change. Okay, Anne. Okay, I'm class of 63 and I uh, live in Peterborough, New Hampshire. I'm a retired academic librarian and I'm a climate activist now working on both national and local issues. Uh, and I think we're planning to go to the reunion because uh, I think we have a date with Gacharan Das to meet him there. I don't know if you guys know him, but. Yes, uh, yes, I remember. Yeah. Uh, well, as you know, I'm Jeff Fox and I'm in Spain. I was for many years a, a teaching sociology uh, with actually my focusing mainly on Latin America until finally realizing that books on Latin America didn't sell. I wrote one on Latinos in the U.S. Uh, now, now I'm writing uh, uh, fiction mostly. Uh, Jerry Secundi in Pasadena, California, class of 63 also, an environmental lawyer, spent a couple of years in Peru in the Peace Corps and live in Pasadena, California, and it's beautiful outside. Okay, Ken. Uh, Ken Manister, um, originally from the south side of Chicago, uh, Harvard 63, uh, the law school there, 66. Uh, I then studied in Peru on a Fulbright, and then uh, most of my career has been uh, teaching environmental law at Santa Clara University and some other places. Okay, Liz. Hi, um, I'm also class of 63. I'm currently in the uh, DC metro area. Uh, but since I live in Maryland, I'm going to go down next weekend and canvas for Elaine Luria in Virginia. Um, and I'm a almost retired clinical psychologist. Peter. Hi, I'm an editor and writer. And I left Harvard and uh, joined the civil rights movement. And uh, joined SNCC in Southwest Georgia. And the guy we worked for there, Charles Sherrod, just passed away this past week. And uh, he, he it was lesser known than uh, the leading lights of SNCC, uh, John Lewis, Stokely Carmichael, <coughs> Julian Bond, uh, Bob Moses, but 
he he was an incredible force in in Georgia and his organization of SNCC is the only one that lasted from the 60s till now and is still ongoing. And I, I could I could talk about it for a long time, but uh, and I won't do that, but I'll send a link out. I'll send the link out later to his obituary in the in the papers down there. And you guys should know Good. more about him, I think. Okay, great. Okay. Nick. Nick Bancroft, live outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass, uh, class of 63, Harvard Business School, then uh, into the Peace Corps, two years in India, uh, uh, an experience that uh, has been imprinted on me, uh, and I think about uh, almost daily <clears throat> um, sort of financial uh, investments and trusts and wills in Boston, kind of stuck <coughs> in the mud. Okay, Hamp. Hampton Howell, 63, living in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, not as intelligent as Liz because I'm still working in clinical psychology. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I think about stepping back every day. Uh, and I'm, I'm remembering Federico Garcia Lorca and uh, Pigeons Dabbling, Dead Water, and Green, I Want You Green, which is English translations of some of his stuff. And when I see your your name, is, is it Laura? Gloria? <laughs> uh, uh, I, 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 I can't resist thinking of him when I see your name. Uh, uh, how do you say it, right? You say it, Lorja, kind of like Georgia, but with an L. Lorja, ah. yes, thank you. John. Oh, hi, John Woodford. You have another uh, uh, writer, editor kind of person. I'm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I was at the university putting out a publication here for a lot of years. And before that, I did stuff in the Black Press and New York Times and elsewhere. Okay, George. George, George Jones, Jones, also in Ann Arbor, class of 1963. David Uthmer, Harvard uh, 63, classmate of Mix at the business school. Grew up in Puerto Rico, Guatemala, Brazil, and Colombia, and uh, worked for public television and public radio in New York City and Philadelphia most of my life, and live in Philadelphia now. Okay, George Allen. Hi, I'm in Los Angeles, uh, also class of 63, semi-retired lawyer. Uh, and Professor, thank you for joining us. We are so happy to have you and tell us about yourself, tell us about your book. I am currently in um, Arlington, Massachusetts. I've been living here for about a decade uh, since I began my tenure track as an assistant professor at Harvard in 2013. Uh, and I just published two books. I'm not really sure which one you read or if you're familiar with either one of them. One of them is called uh, Translating Blackness which came out uh, about a month ago. And it's my second monograph. It's uh, research work that I did for about nine years, uh, looking at, it's mostly an intellectual history of Black Latinidad that begins in the 19th century and kind of ends in the 20, at the end of the 21st uh, century. And I do work on Black people who identify themselves as Black and Latinos living in the global North, places like the US, uh, but also places like Spain and, and Italy. 
and then the other book which i think uh you send uh, can't a link to is this little guy community as rebellion that came out in may and that is a radically different book it's not a an academic uh, book it's not a research-based book but rather more of a rant <laughs> i would call it um about my experience teaching ethnic studies uh at the university and uh, in particular at Harvard where I taught for eight years. Um, and what I do in the book is I share a little bit uh, about what it's like to be a woman of color teaching in an American elite institution uh, and some of the challenges that I face and that some of my colleagues face. but. Also, some really just practical things that can be done in the classroom. <clears throat> students, particular students of color, feel safer uh, in places like Harvard. Um, what else? I am currently at Tufts, where I chair the Department of Race, Colonialism, and Diaspora, which is a new department at Tufts where Africana, Latinx studies, Asian American studies, and Native American studies are uh, housed. It's a young department. Uh, with lots of young colleagues, so some exciting stuff happening there. I'm happy with the work that we're doing. Um, I mean, and I'm just eager to hear your questions, learn from you. Uh, Professor, could you tell us something about what the steps you take to make uh, the classroom experience more comfortable for people, people of color? So I teach Latinx studies, which is a field that um, studies people who are of Latin American descent, but living uh, in mostly the United States. The field that came out of the 1960s student struggles. So unlike Latin American studies, which kind of come from the university uh, down, Latinx studies, just like black studies, um, comes from student uh, demand. Um, and a lot of a lot of what I what I teach, a lot of the students I teach happen to be so uh, also first generation students of color who come into my classes. Now, uh, bear in mind the courses I teach are seldom required by the university, so most people take my classes because they want to. So it's, it's a huge privilege. You already have start the classroom in, in, with a room of, of students who want to just learn um, and are taking the course because they're interested. Uh, but the majority of students that, that trickle into, especially my, my intro-level courses, are uh, first-generation students of color, majority of them Latinos, uh, Black Latinos. Um, and they're in my, they wind up in my classes because none of their other courses in their syllabus reflect anything remotely close to the kinds of experiences they come from, whether it's history or literature or whatnot, philosophy. Um, and a lot of them come from uh, deep institutional traumas, uh, feeling singled out in their classes, um, not knowing how to speak to a larger uh, audience and so on. And so a lot of what I do at the beginning of the course uh, is set up the space so that students feel safe to learn. I share who are, my subject position, who I am, where I come from. Um, and I create a lot of um, assignments that are group-based and that kind of break the cycle of individual research, which is really hard, especially for graduate students, right? Because we're, we're trained to, to sort of guard the work we do. Um, so things that I do, um, we have 
group uh, reading groups every week outside of class and students work in smaller groups and, and get to know each other really well and support each other in the readings. Uh, we do, I, I do an assignment that um, students are always very excited about because they, they always want to demonstrate how much more they know than the professor, uh, in which I ask them to point out the silences and omissions in my syllabus. And so they have to come up with what is what, what did I miss? You know, when I'm teaching them, what, what is not there? What did they wish uh, was included? What they don't know is that the second half of the assignment is now you're going to feel that silence. And so they work together in groups and do research on, on the stuff they wish had been included. And that ends up being really um, empowering for students uh, and productive for, for the, the learning environment that I'm looking for in the classroom. Those are, those are some of the key uh, sort of everyday life things I do. Um, I'm very intentional about what I teach, who I teach, and who we read. And I'm also very, very honest about, uh, with my students about my <coughs> potential blind, blind spots, the kinds, um, the kinds of knowledge that I'm engaging them with, the ways in which I want them to be critical about the readings um, and understanding that I have an opinion, that I'm not objective, and that and that my job is not to be objective in the classroom or to present one way of understanding knowledge and they should know that that's just one way and that there are multiple ways and that they should seek out multiple ways to engage. Um, and so I find that that kind of sincerity in the classroom goes a long way and students feel more comfortable, more safe uh, to speak and to, and to talk and to ask questions and to admit that they don't know or that they didn't do the reading, and then how do we go beyond that? Well, was that the kind of teaching you were doing at Harvard when you were there? Was that how it was structured? And how yeah. did that get over with them? I didn't get tenure, so. <laughs> um, yeah, that was the kind of teaching that I did at Harvard, and it was, um, I wouldn't change it for the world. It was immensely impactful uh, to my students. Um, again, you know, when you are uh, teaching an elite private institution that has uh, a small number of students who are not just of color, but students who are also first gen, meaning they're the first ones in their families to ever go to college, like I was. My parents were janitors, we were the first one to go to college. Um, when you are finding yourself in a place like that, there's, there's so much you don't know and there's so much that's hard to deal with from just the economic disparity mm -hmm. um, of just hearing your classmates or your um, your housemates or uh, roommates and whatnot um, doing things that you would never be able to afford. I remember one of my biggest shocks when I moved uh, to Massachusetts and when I started as a professor at Harvard was uh, hearing the word summer be used as a verb, as in, where do you summer? Um, how do you respond to that? I mean, I responded what I spring and fall, but you know, how do you respond to that when you're 18 years old and you are moving from, uh, you know, a, a, a household in which you are one of, you know, seven kids and it's a mixed status family and half of your family is undocumented and you are just all of a sudden in this space. That's really hard. And so universities, not just Harvard, but universities in general are doing a pretty a good job at admitting first-gen students but once they arrive it's like we we don't there's no work uh, to support that transition and that's really hard so i often ended up in the classroom with 
a lot of students of, of all kinds of racial and ethnic backgrounds who had that kind of experience and it was really, really hard um, for them. And so I wanted them to feel um, like they didn't need to be guarded in my classroom, that it was okay to not know uh, and that we, our goal was to learn together. And, and that, was, that was really, um, it, it's had an impact and I hear it from my students over the years. I'd be interested in um, anything you have to say about being a woman in this situation. So for me, it's, it's, it's all about the intersections. So it's, it's, I'm not just a woman, right? I'm also a black woman. I'm also a Latina. I'm also an immigrant woman. I'm also queer. So all of the things that sort of came together uh, in in the way in which I exist had um, had an impact and it's hard for me to separate one or the other because it's it wasn't just that I was a woman, it was also that I was uh, a woman of all of these other uh, configurations. But a lot of the spaces, as I'm sure you know, that, that are inhabited in the, in, in the academy, in the academy um, are dominated by cis white men uh, and so I have a son, for example, and I was a single mom at the time on top of all the other uh, identities that I inhabit. And so that was very challenging because it was frowned upon to be, first of all, a mom in, in a tenure track. You're, not suppo you're supposed to be devoting you know, all of your life to your scholarship. And if you're a parent, that's, if you're a mother, that's not something that you're... Um, supposed to be able to do and then on top of that if you're a single mother it's just that, that's actually one of one of the things that showed up on on my tenure case which well she's a single parent like how dedicated could she possibly be to um to the work that she's doing so um and i have um i have an anecdote i'm in a faculty meeting um and my chair shows up late you know sweaty and all just like scrambling and he goes i'm so sorry i'm late my wife is out of town and i'm single parenting this week this is so hard and i just looked at him and it, it at that moment it just it hadn't occurred to him this is my everyday life i am never late and i am not uh ever showing up with my child to a faculty meeting right but the way in which the standards are radically different for women and men continue to be yeah. <clears throat> I, I, yeah. If I can get something in here, I'm I'm just wondering about the um, oh what is what can I call it the ambient and uh, the political atmosphere uh, where you are because I'm remembering my first teaching job was at University of Illinois in Chicago. I started just months after the murder of Fred Hampton, and everything was the, the, the politics were really on edge, and everybody was very aware. So there were the Black Panthers. Uh, there were the young lords and the, the Puerto Rican community, and uh, it was kind of impossible to teach ethnic studies without somehow connecting to all the things that were going on in, in Chicago. And I'm wondering, is, is, there, is there some kind of, I don't know, political uh, consciousness among, among, your, uh, among your students? Um, I mean, now people are keeping talking about identity as though identity were something that you were born with instead of something that you create. 
which I think is a mistake. But um, in, at, at that time, they were really talking about a collective action. Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering what the feel is um, that you get from your students. It changes, it changes radically um, per, I would say per generation of students. So there was, there was definitely an impetus around 2016, right after uh, the elections, uh -huh. uh, where campus were just, you know, boiling with that political energy uh, and students organizing um, around a bunch of issues, uh, you know, related to immigration, related to um, the, the murders of the continuous murders of black people in America uh, and fo fossil fuel uh, at places like Harvard and Columbia about union, uh, unionizing graduate students and so on. And so we have seen sort of cycles of that if you will, uh, certainly around 20, uh, 2016 and then again um, around 2020. What, what I do, um, what is very, very different from the energy of the 60s is that it doesn't, it doesn't translate into tangible changes institutionally. Right, so we see uh, students organizing, having sort of that energy, which, you know, this generation of, of of people very different than what you guys did and even what I did when I was younger because they everything is on social media. Uh, and so there, there's, there's that aspect of it. Um, but then just kind of like sizzling out and, and not really um, leading to <coughs> being unable to sort of connect what's happening in their neighborhoods and in the world what was happening in the classroom, which is something I'm very interested in. Uh, that's, that's hard. For, for students outside of ethnic studies. You see it very much so in ethnic studies, which is why there's still so much resistance to ethnic studies as a as a field, because the university recognizes it as a sort of dangerous um, space for activism and, and for, you know, messing up some of this uh, institutional projects. But outside of ethnic studies, is really it's really tricky to see students, even when they're reading things like about racial capitalism, they're not able to, understand that that Amazon product they had in their hand, you know, <laughs> comes from this system that you're criticizing in the classroom. There's, there's a lot of that that's hard to sort of ground. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, Ken has a hand on. Ken, Ken. Yes, um, I, I, I'm very interested in your comments about the students' experience uh, coming to a place like Harvard. Um, but I'd be very interested in your experience as a faculty member, what you describe uh, in terms of your identity and your presence at Harvard. Um, sounds to me like, like you felt quite unique uh, and uh, perhaps alone. And uh, I'm curious as to whether that, that is the way it felt over the years. Uh, what your sense is, were there many other people uh, sort of like you and with you? And uh, is it different at a place like Tufts now with both a, a different place and the passage of some years? Those are all excellent questions. The challenge with the project of diversity and inclusion that the university subscribes to is that inclusion doesn't mean centering 
and inclusion doesn't mean having a critical mass of people. It just means usually having one, having two folks, and that's enough, right? Um, and so when you find yourself being one or one of a handful of people, whether it is in your field of knowledge or your race or your gender, um, it, there is very little that you can change. It's a, it's a kind of a solitary process. So I was the only Latina on the entire tenure track in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard. So when I say that it was a small, it was small. No. <laughs> um, and uh, in I was one of two professors who specialized in Latinx studies in the entire university. The other professor, Maynard Rivera, is at the um, Divinity School. And so it's it's really challenging to do that kind of work. Um, and so my I would say my position was not unique in the sense that, that it is how the university operates. It's not just Harvard, it's across. Um, and so it's, it's something that resonates with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, what, what makes it harder at this moment, at this juncture, is that universities are admitting a very large number of students um, who are who coming from the kinds of experiences that I, that I came from. But that is not being matched by hiring faculty. Yeah. And so the tax, the taxing of labor was uh, incredible. Like I've never worked this hard in my life I, and it was unequal. So that in my department, I always had the largest classes and the disparity between the number of students I was serving and the number of students some of my colleagues were serving was quite huge. So just to give you a sense, I had 24 PhD students that I advise. And my colleagues had zero, one or two. Right. And so the, the major, major, major difference while being also on a tenure track inspecting to produce good quality research, right? Uh, my classes consistently had 50 plus students, what my colleagues, again, would have six or seven. That means the number of exams and papers I had to grade were four or five times as, as more, um, while I was also getting paid the least. So the, it's a labor issue. Uh, it's, it's all kinds of issues. Um, so it's not just about representation and identity. We're talking about labor, we're talking about abuse of power, we're talking about just really not taking into account what students need. Because to me, a university should very simply look at the number of courses being taught, look at what student, where students' interests lie when they think about hiring. It's, it's, it, it shouldn't, it's not rocket science. So at some point, my department gets approved another tenure line. And I, you know, enthusiastically said, we should hire somebody else who does Latino studies because I am drowning on, you know, dissertation work here. And instead they hire somebody else um, in medieval Italian studies where, you know, the, the, the number of students taking these courses per average was two. You have a professor teaching a seminar for two students in a public university that would never fly. And so this, these are the kinds of decisions that are not made based on students' needs or even departmental needs, but just based on, on an, an outdated notion of what knowledge is and which stories, histories, literatures count. Thank you. Well, I see. Well, why was, the, why was there such this disparity between the numbers? I mean, 
it's it's a field it's a booming field ethnic studies has been growing for the past 50 years right, right. Uh, there weren't a lot of classes offered because again remember i was the only one <laughs> so if i'm the only one teaching introduction to latino studies and it's a and it's an area in which students have a lot of interest you would want to offer three courses in this area you would think but there are there's no department there's no structure to fight for this type of thing spencer I, yes, this is fascinating. I have a, a two questions, but the first one is that uh, how did, did you see any or discover uh, during this process that you just described right now, uh, any uh, pointers from the African-American experience at Harvard? Because uh, I, uh, we're, uh, most of the people on this program uh, came through at a similar time, uh, very few presents. Uh, there were five Blacks in my class and no courses on, on the subject of, uh, you know, our particular part in, in history. So I was wondering, is, is, are there affinities that you can, uh, uh, that you uh, can, uh, that you did experience or one could experience in, in uh, multi, you know, comparing comparative culture, so to speak, comparative culture experience. So I identify myself as a Black Latina, uh, which means I am both Black and Latina, because Latina yes. is not a race. Um, the African American Studies Department at Harvard has grown so much since you guys were there, and that is. It's, it's huge, right? It's it's had an impact on students, um, and on faculty, and of course, it it is it makes it makes it makes it easier, right? Students have places where they can take courses. Is that is it enough? No, <laughs> more can be done still. Um, to not only to to talk about blackness in the U.S., but to talk about blackness globally. Uh, to and I think that there's 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 good work being done. There's really good faculty there. The the experience of students of color, whether you're black or Latinx or or indigenous, con continues to be a minoritized one. Same for faculty because it, even if you have a very strong department, it happens to be one department. So that if your field of knowledge, if your field of of scholarship, it's not African American studies, and you're black, and let's say you're black and a math professor, your experience is radically different. So that that space for a lot of us was a safe heaven, right? Because you go there and you feel at home and you have, even if it wasn't my department, it was a place where I, uh, where I ran to <laughs> whenever I could. But outside of that, the university is still what mm -hmm. it used to be, you know what I mean? So, so that it's, it's good progress, but it's not enough. I was wondering, you just, uh, uh, that was my second question, uh, that the most uh, African-Americans, or most Americans, uh, including African-Americans, are not aware of the identity uh, of experience of uh, Black Latinas, in, uh, Black uh, people in, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, in Hispanic America. Uh, and the uh, and the uh, uh, American experience because they both came from the same colonization 
uh, experience. And uh, I happen to have a, a, a couple of experiences with that, uh, with uh, seeing first uh, people uh, arriving. Uh, and uh, I, I was thinking that the identity of, um, uh, of uh, music uh, as something that found an immediate connection and immediate sense of legitimacy and power throughout the whole culture. So what I what I try to do, thank you for, for your question and your sharing your stories. Too bad we can't dance together. Mm -hmm. um, I um, what I try to do in this book, translating blackness that just came out, is um, to think through the ways in which um, the 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 things that we have in common that we um, don't name historically. So I'm more than um, more than these points of identity, music and food and whatnot that 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 do you know unite us and that do make it obvious where we come from. I'm really interested in thinking about uh, concepts like slavery and freedom, um, how um, how the 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 history of um, of movement. Uh, between African Americans and Caribbean people in the 19th century shaped some of the ways in which we think about blackness today and so on. So I, I look, for example, a lot at Frederick Douglass's time in the Caribbean uh, and his work there and how it was received by, uh, by black Latinx um, freedom fighters of the moment. And we, we, we talk about, you know, the 1619, which is such an important moment, but we forget that that was not the first moment and that by 1619, there were thousands and thousands of enslaved black people who had lived in the Caribbean for over a hundred years before. And so the way in which all of those histories have been erased have done a disservice to how we can think about coalition building, uh, how we can think about common experiences that unite us and whatnot, right? It's not, we, we focus so much more on questions of citizenship, ethnicity and language than we do, which are our differences, right? Um, rather than the histories that we share, which are so many. Um, and so much longer than this last 60 years that dominate uh, our political thought. So I am a big sort of 19th century fan um, and spend quite a bit of time thinking through you know, some of the some of these people and the way in, the, in which they were seeing blackness at the time, because they, you know, if you are part of a nation that sees you as not human, you're not going to be, you know, raising your hands and embracing citizenship. You're going to be looking at transnational ways of being and that's that's what this 19th century black people were doing at that time and i, I really i really love that moment because of that mm -hmm. uh, Hamp. yeah um i guess what i want to end up asking you Lorja, is is uh uh what are the biggest difficulties with people like us becoming allies and one thing that i noticed for myself today while you're talking is that I go in and out and and I I realize there's certain things that I haven't heard uh, 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 while we are talking even though I do hear a lot of other stuff that uh, that you do say and and, and then uh, when you think about Harvard uh, I think about a uh, 
it was deviantized when I was in high school because the word was that people from uh, Harvard were uh, fairies who who kept their uh, coats buttoned up in the uh, uh, winter, unlike real men who would go around with their coats open. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, yeah. Harvard is this sort of weird mixture of uh, people being alienated from it and uh, uh, but also staffing elite institutions. It, it's both prestige and it's 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 a weird deviant <laughs> situation that I think uh, uh, I I concealed that I uh, went to Harvard for a, a, a with with a lot of people in a lot of situations. There continues there continues to be. Uh, a lack of openness in certain institutions and, and especially conservative sort of elite institutions as to what is um, not, what is what is acceptable for students to learn uh, or what should students learn um, and and that shapes not only students and uh, and faculty but also who is um, granted tenure, who is um, granted time off for research, and, and so on. And so it, it's, I think it's a, it's a, it's a balance that, uh, that it's not there right now, and that has in part to do with the way in which the, the university keeps leaning towards more of a corporate um line right becoming more and more sort of this uh, corporate institution that it that is about amassing huge uh, <laughs> amounts of money rather than serving students uh and teaching them to be the best professionals they can be in whatever field there there are and so i'm really i'm always puzzled by what the goals of the universities are because if our goal is to produce research and teach students, it should be really easy to make decisions about what to teach, who to hire, who to tenure, who to retain. But what happens in, in elite research institutions is that, as you probably all know, teaching is not valued. Teaching is sort of like that little thing you do as a side project when you're done with your research. And, there, and, the, and the paths of research that are approved and esteemed i trust are not keeping up with the world and the needs of students the world the needs of students but even uh newer academic fields that might you know ethnic studies is it's 50 years old it's not a new field but to harvard is still a new field yeah. right mm -hmm. and so while the the field while the the knowledge the exciting stuff that's being produced in the humanities it's coming out of fields like ethnic studies, which are more interdisciplinary, um, that is just not really being registered as uh, cutting edge as it is in, in certain circles, right? And so if the people who are being tasked with evaluating my work have never heard of Black Latinx people in their lives, <laughs> and they're making judgment on my work based on what they know, and not understanding that they just don't know, like they're just ignorant about an entire field of knowledge, then it's going to be very hard for them to be appreciative of the work that I'm doing. Right? May I just footnote a, a question? Are you aware of, of universities 
that you think are moving in the directions you're speaking of? Or? I think the majority of schools are are moving in in a different direction because they're they're losing students. students because why? Are, they're because losing, they're losing students. students. Oh. Uh, students are not dumb. Uh, there's so much uh, student debt in this country. People are really thinking about about college as a choice again, not as something you just automatically do. And so you want to attract students, you you definitely need to make some changes. So places like Yale have invested quite a bit in ethnic studies. They have a very strong program uh, with you know something like 14 faculty members as opposed to one or two uh, like Harvard does. Uh, Columbia is moving in that direction, Princeton. So they're, they're, the Ivies are kind of finally, um, <laughs> I think they finally realize and like, oh, this is safe enough to do because the public universities are doing it for 50 years. So maybe we should. Maybe we should do it. Uh, some schools are still sort of lagging and still waiting and still holding on to, to certain ideas of of what fields, sh what is a legitimate field. So, in I was housed in Roman studies and Roman languages in Harvard uh, because there is no ethnic studies department. But it was a very strange place to be because I don't work on a Romance language. I speak a bunch of them, but that has nothing to do with my research. Um, and and so most of what was the conversations that were happening were so incredibly relevant to the work that I was doing. So people were talking about language requirements, that really had nothing to do with the work I did. Um, and, and that happens quite a bit to, to ethnic studies faculty who are placed in just departments that are not, um, the most suitable for the kind of work that they're doing. And so their work is misunderstood within that department. Mm -hmm. John, what's for? Yeah, well, I guess I, I think um, I, can, I can see this partly. I've been at the university here, a public university for a long time. And some of these things, I, I don't know that a, that a school has to have something called ethnic studies, it could be doing the same job in history, sociology, or anthropology, or many other kind of economics, many other disciplines. The main thing is that it should have, um, you know, faculty who are, who are, who are experts in their field and able to teach kids how to analyze and think, because I think a lot of this, I didn't go to, I didn't go to college to be comfortable, or to uh, necessarily maybe see a teacher who looked like me or not. It wasn't even something on my mind. I'm certain that there are many generations of um, people from different parts of the world, um, you know, uh, Jews or Serbians or Croats or others who came to this country and didn't see many uh, faculty when they first got here who looked like them. But when you go to school, that's not, you know, the primary thing in learning is to have good teachers. If they happen to look like you or not, I mean, that just depends on how how connected you are emotionally to have to have someone who looks like you teach you. But we know that around the world, plenty of people, let's say in the colony, in the colonies, when Catholic priests who didn't look like the people uh, taught various people, and some of them taught them very well, and those people uh, went up, and then maybe they developed their own teaching cadre, but they first had to learn from people who didn't look like them and that it was not really uh, necessarily a barrier to, to look uh, uh, to their education. The same goes for some who looked like them, who uh, in uh, when I read the African novels of the people who first went to school, a lot of them got beat by people who looked like them. 
as a rule, because that was the um, you know part of the pedagogical system that for, you know in certain areas of the world. So there's it's such a mixed thing that um, I would not to me I wouldn't want to what I would think of as as make a demand that something should be ethnic studies. I I think kids should be taught how to think and read and a lot of stuff about your own ethnic group. Um, it's not so important that other people necessarily have to learn about it. First, you ought to learn about it and be equipped to learn about it on your own. I think in a lot of the Southern schools, when I came to college, Travis Williams, my classmate who went to a black school in Durham, North Carolina, he knew a lot more about black history and politics, but not just black history and politics. He knew more about world history and politics than I did because he happened to have uh, high school teachers who had PhDs but couldn't get jobs teaching in college. And uh, so there was a, you know, an unplanned uh, 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 result of the segregated system. Or the Hubert Harrison, the one that uh, Jeff Perry, I think he, he died, he was dying when he appeared before us, but uh, Hubert Harrison was trained in the Danish West Indies, but he had a way better educational system because he was trained by people who were good teachers who who meant to meant, who meant to teach and who um, nourished the students and and taught them how to think. So it's a complicated factor. I wouldn't want to have a situation in, in our country where we had uh, sort of these um, you know so-called you know ethnic and so-called racial kind of of uh, definitions of people that might get in the way of um, broader outlooks. And, well, you know, I, well, I have to go in a few minutes, so I want to yeah. answer you first. There's a couple of things that, that, that are just really wrong with what you said. First of all, you're assuming that ethnic studies is not a field, and that's insulting. I have a PhD from Michigan in ethnic studies. So it's a field of knowledge, just like history, just like philosophy, and therefore it deserves the same kind of space in the university. That's number one. Number two, you're assuming that ethnic studies teachers and students are of an ethnic group, and that's not how it works. Ethnic studies is a way of understanding the world that is not through white supremacy. What you're deciding that is um, good education, or what all of us, have been trained in as good education is education that's centered on European Eurocentric knowledge and that we value as good. But we only value that it's good because that is what we learn from kindergarten to PhD. We're robbing the world. This is not about ethnic or racialized or black and Latino kids learning about themselves. This is about all of us learning that all of these different knowledges are important. How right. all of us would be required then? Well, why wouldn't you? You could make the same argument to say there should be something called class studies. Absolutely. And I'm not saying this is a requirement, and it exists already, by the way. There is such a thing as uh, sociology that centers socialism and class studies. Well, Very much in every thing. institution. What you don't have in most institutions is the study of Black, Latinx, Indigenous and Asian American people who are who are absolutely part of this world and continue to be excluded from archives, from books, from history. And so I don't care if my professor is green or yellow or purple, if they're learning and teaching our students 
everything that the students need to learn. What happened, the reason why we need ethnic studies is because everything else is white studies in our country. Everything else. Everything is centered around European knowledge. If you take a class on philosophy, all the philosophy that you're going to be studying is coming from France, is coming from Germany. Are you saying that people from Africa don't have philosophy? Yes, you're saying that and you're sending that message to our kids. So I am really glad that you do not get to make that decision in the institutions um, in which I work in, because this is absolutely, absolutely 100% necessary and not just for students who look like me, for everyone. I wouldn't want a doctor going into an ER room not understanding that my humanity is worth the same as others. That's key. And if we're moving, if we are actually going to move forward in this world, if we're actually going to say, do what we say we want, which is an anti-racist society in which we center everyone, in which the experiences of all people, all humans are the same. We need to start by educating our kids to appreciate the histories, the literature, the languages, the cultures of all people. And representation does matter. There's so much studies that has been done on what it means for a black little girl to go to school and have a black teacher. That actually has an impact. So we should be trying to hire more. Why should every professor and every teacher be white? Well, that's not what I'm saying. No, but you're saying it doesn't matter, and it does. Well, Just because it didn't it matter, matter to it you. May not. Or, well, maybe it, it didn't matter to you, but it matters to the majority of people. And if we are going to have to, if we're going to think about changing structures, we have to think about all of this. I'll tell you what matters. is What matters is uh, not having good schools in the uh, public school system where kids are learning. But it's uh, not one or the other. It's not yeah. one or the other. All of these things are intertwined. Right. All of these things are intertwined. I'm 100% in agreement with you that the most important thing is to have a good teacher. Yes, nobody wants a mediocre teacher teaching our kids. I don't want a mediocre teacher teaching our kids. All, yeah. all of these yeah. things are important. All of these things are critical. And, and, and we have to think about not one or the other. And this whole conversation about studying uh, critical ethnic or racial studies and that dividing the country, that is untrue. That is based on, on fears and that is based on white supremacy. And we need to really think through that. I didn't say that we shouldn't study ethnic groups. Well, let's get a last question then. Spencer, last question. We oh, go. thanks. <laughs> I've been wanting to ask you this question. Uh, and it relates to just what this last conversation was all about. What, and I'd like to put one little quick addition before you answer. Uh, the question is, uh, what do you think the impact of Francia Marquez in her election as the uh, uh, first uh, uh, woman and the first black uh, 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 official, top official of Colombia, and uh, uh, and secondly, uh, just a quick thing that in answer to the pedagogical questions that were going back and forth, uh, I, I uh, just took a group of uh, black uh, uh, and, and well, they were black and, and Hispanic uh, 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 students and just put them on uh, a, uh, a Zoom, which wasn't called Zoom back then, but it was a primitive version with a black students at a school in, in Brazil and just had them start communicating with themselves and finding out. And at the end of the uh, course, the, the uh, students said, that was the most meaningful thing we, we found. We discovered our own you know, uh, questions that we wanted to ask 
and we and on the same the other way. But uh, I think that direct contact uh, uh, is uh, is very very good uh, way to put. Uh, as you said, we need to have these black uh, teachers present and so forth and so on. And that's just what we did. So, but to go uh, to the uh, to the question of uh, uh, Francia Marquez, what 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 do you think about that and the impact that she may have on uh, Black uh, Latinas throughout the diaspora? I think whenever we have um, a we we all saw it. We were all alive and adults when Obama won. Um, the impact that having a um, a first, if you will, you know, uh, uh, in this case, a first black woman on um, the psyche, um, I would say, of, of a nation is, is, is lasting. And I think we're still grappling with what the impact has been on the U.S. On the one hand, uh, we ended up with Trump after. Uh, on the other, there's an entire generation of black kids that can see that it is true, that it is possible to become president of the United States, and we didn't have evidence of that. So I am of the mind that um, it is representation, it, it's not, um, it only matters if it's, if it's matched with actual social changes. So representation alone does, does nothing, right? We've, we've had, you know, all kinds of public figures and uh, cultural figures uh, for years, and it has had no impact on communities. But if representation and also the political social changes that need to happen in a society are happening together, it can have an important impact. Um, it can send a right message and it can open doors uh, for others. And so I'm hopeful, I guess, that that would be my um, my reaction to the Marquez um, election, that I'm hopeful that this would be good, especially a place like Colombia, which until very recently, the the existence even of black Colombians seemed to be silenced. Like people just didn't talk about it, even though it's such a large uh, location of Afro-diasporic people right. in Latin America. So even if, even if it is just for the sort of na transnational public dialogue about look at this population that has been here, um, I think it would have, I'm hopeful for the impact that would have. That, that would be my, my reaction. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was really great. Thank you. Presentation. Thank you. And thank you so on. much for inviting me. Okay. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. That was Lorgia Garcia-Pena, author of Community as Rebellion, a syllabus for surviving academia as a woman of color and translating blackness, Latinx colonialities in global perspective. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Our podcasts are also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>